Well, um, you know, at our church, we are doing a series called Church Renewal, because we believe that during this season, what God wants to do is He wants to renew us as His church, so that when we come out on the other side, we'll be able to impact the world. And we are studying through John's Gospel on a Sunday morning, and we've come in John's Gospel to John chapter 15 and verse 18. So if you have your Bibles there, open them up to John 15, and we're going to be starting at verse 18 this morning. You know, I'll never forget my seventh birthday. Now, the reason I'll never forget my seventh birthday is because of what happened on my sixth birthday. My sixth birthday was one of the best birthdays that I ever have ever had. I remember it as if yesterday. I woke up on my sixth birthday, and I walked out into the living room, and there my whole family were to greet me. As I came out into the living room, there was on our kitchen table a whole heap of presents that they had prepared for me, all wrapped, nicely wrapped for me. As I opened them up, I got a, a little snooker table, a little miniature snooker table. I unwrapped another one, and it was a colorful kite. I went downstairs, and downstairs waiting for me was a BMX bike, the envy of anyone who was a child of the 80s. And the day finished with uh, a celebration that my family held for me, uh, a birthday party where my mum had cooked me this big birthday cake. It was wonderful. But that was my sixth birthday. As I said, I'll never forget my seventh birthday. Because on my seventh birthday, I woke up just as I had on my sixth birthday. But on my seventh birthday, when I walked out into the living room, there was no one to greet me. As I came and looked on the kitchen table... There were no presents. I went downstairs to see if my present was downstairs, but there was nothing. And do you know what? Everyone had slept in because guess what? They had forgot my birthday. They had forgot my birthday. And because what I had expected had not happened, I was very disappointed. I wonder if that's ever happened to you. I wonder if you've been disappointed because what you expected and what happened were two different things. I wonder if you've been ever disappointed with people. You know, if you probably don't have a pulse if you haven't been disappointed with people at some point because we've all been disappointed by people who haven't lived up to what they said they would do for us. But what about God? Have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever felt that he hadn't given you the life that you expected? You know, as we've been studying through John 15, it's like Jesus has shown us all of this table full of presents. You know, if you abide in Christ, you will bear much fruit. Jesus has said to us, he said, I don't just call you slaves, but I now call you my friends. And in verse 17 of John 15, he says this amazing thing. He says, whatever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. And if John 15 just ended in verse 17, then what would you expect the Christian life to be like? You would expect the Christian life to be like blessing upon blessing or season after fruit being born in season after season. But then we come to verse 18 and the tone radically changes. And this is because Jesus knows that people will be disappointed unless they have the right expectations. Jesus knows in order to prepare his disciples for his departure, he needs to give them the right expectations for what it will really mean 
if they are going to follow him. So what should we expect in following Jesus? What should we expect as we follow Jesus? Well, the first thing that Jesus says in this passage that we should expect if we are his followers is that we should expect opposition. If we are living wholehearted for Jesus, then the first thing that we should expect is opposition. Jesus says this in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, and he's using a first-class condition here in Greek, and he says, so I'm assuming that this is true for the sake of the argument. If the world hates you, then know this, it hated me first. Now, Jesus is using a particular construction when he talks, when he uses the word world here. And you need to understand how he's using this world, word. You know, earlier in John's gospel, in the very famous passage, John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And in John 3.16, Jesus is using the term world to describe the inhabitants of the world, the people of the world. So God so loved the people of the world that he gave his only Son to die for them, so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But as we come into John um, chapter 15 and verse 18, Jesus is using the word world in a different sense. What he means when he says, if the world hates you here, is he's speaking of the world as a system, a system that is set against God, a system of belief and assumptions that is set against God. You see, all throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus had been saying that there are basically two ways to approach life. There are two approaches to life. There is the kingdom of God, and there is the kingdom of this world. Now, on the one hand, people who are part of the kingdom of God, they base their beliefs and their values on what King Jesus says. You see, people who are part of the kingdom of God, they've recognized that they are sinners, they've turned to him for grace, and they've bowed their knee to Jesus as king. And so they base what they think and what they do and what they believe on what Jesus says. Their allegiance is to him. He is their king. But The people of the world, on the other hand, they base their beliefs and their values on what seems best to them. They do not bow their knee to King Jesus. Instead, they are their own kings. Now, the kingdom of this world can come in many different varieties, but basically it has the same mantra. Do what feels good to you. You are king, so do as you would like. Now, before you just think that this is a religious thing, it's actually interesting that In this context, in John 15, the people who Jesus would see as the people of this world or the kingdom of this world would be the religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, a religious person can just be as much a part of the kingdom of this world as a secular person. You know, religious people can be doing their religion for their own benefit, their own gain, for their own selves. You know, many times in the history of the world, religious people have done terrible things because they've been building their own kingdoms rather than the kingdom of God. And you see, this is why the world hates Jesus. Now, the world doesn't hate the imaginary Jesus that's often put forward in the media, the hippie Jesus who just walks around and hugs everyone and says, peace, brother. But the true Jesus, the one who's described in the Bible, who came down from God the Father, and who, as Jesus says in verse 24, did the works that no one else did, demonstrating that God was with him, this Jesus is the one that the world hates. Because this Jesus, he speaks the truth. He doesn't just tell you that you can live however you want and it'll all be good. No, this Jesus tells you 
that unless you turn from living for yourself, you will be outside of his kingdom now and you'll be outside of his kingdom for all eternity. And that's why the world hates or opposes the followers of Jesus because they're opposed to Jesus and they are part of a different kingdom. They have a different set of values and beliefs. They are on a different team. You know, I played soccer growing up and one of my friends in high school, Lee, he played for a different soccer team. I played for Burham Districts growing up and he played for Harvey Bay United. Now, one day, our teams, they played each other. Now, before the game, we greeted one another and we were friendly with one another. But once the game started, we were on opposing teams. And my allegiance was to my team and my coach, and his allegiance was to his team and his coach. And it's not like during the course of the game, I passed him the ball and said, there you go, Lee, have a bit of a play with the ball. No, 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 I was trying to get the ball off Lee. And he was trying to get the ball off me. And why was this? We were on different teams. And I wasn't upset by this, that the fact that we were on different teams. I expected it because Lee was on a different team to me. And we shouldn't be upset by the opposition that comes from the world. As Jesus says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would accept you as its own. But since I called you out of the world, that is why the world hates you. You know, if you were part of the kingdom of this world and you were on that team, then the world would accept you. So don't be surprised when the world doesn't accept you but opposes you because you are on a different team. You have bowed your knee to King Jesus. King Jesus has called you out of the world and into the kingdom of God. Now you might say, I don't like the fact that we're going to suffer persecution or we should expect persecution and opposition. Well, Jesus says this in verse 20. He says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Now, Jesus had said those words that very night when he had washed his disciples' feet. He said, you know, just as I've washed your feet, so you should wash each other's feet. A servant is not greater than his master. And so Jesus says, remember that word. A servant is not greater than than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Yes, unfortunately, suffering and opposition and persecution is part of playing on King Jesus's team. You know, it's a good thing every now and again, as a follower of Jesus, to take an inventory of your life and ask yourself if you're experiencing any opposition at all. Because while Christians suffer different kinds of opposition, and there are different levels of opposition in different parts of the world, opposition and persecution, according to Jesus, is part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that you should go looking for opposition. You know, some Christians suffer opposition, and it's their own fault. But if you have no opposition at all, Maybe you've got the jersey Christian on, but you're actually playing still for the team of the world, and that's why they're leaving you alone. So as a follower of Jesus, the first thing that you can expect is opposition. But it doesn't end there, fortunately. <laughs> fortunately, it doesn't end there. While Jesus says that what we can expect as his followers, if we live for him in this world, is opposition, there is a second thing that we can expect, and that is the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. 
In verse 26, after Jesus has said that the world will hate us, he says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus is saying, even though in this world you will suffer opposition and persecution, I'm also sending you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will help you. But how does the Holy Spirit actually help us? Well, turn over to chapter 16 and verse 4. Jesus says this. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Apparently, Jesus didn't teach them about the Holy Spirit right at the very beginning of his ministry, but he was waiting to the end, to these very last moments, to teach them about the Holy Spirit. Look down in verse 5. He says, But now I am going to him who sent me. Jesus was going to the cross. After the cross, he'd be raised from the dead. He would ascend to his Father's right hand and return to the Father. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, this is an amazing statement of Jesus, that the presence of Jesus in physical form is not as great an advantage as the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had already taught them in John 14 that he was going to send another counselor who had been with them, but who would now be in them. But why is the Holy Spirit of such a great advantage for disciples, for believers? Well, it's because of the two ministries of the Holy Spirit that Jesus unpacks in these verses. The first ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus unpacks is the ministry of conviction. Look down in verse 8. Jesus says, and when he comes, he's talking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You know, I said before that the kingdom of God is made up of people who have bowed their knee to King Jesus. And I said the kingdom of this world, what's characteristic of those people is they see themselves as king. Well, that's true, but it's not the whole picture you see, Jesus said that just as, there is, just as Jesus is the ruler of the kingdom of God, there is a ruler of the kingdom of this world, and it is Satan, the great opponent of God, who right from the very beginning stood up in pride against God and has been deceiving people to be proud towards God ever since. And the deception of Satan and the blinding effects of sin are so powerful that apart from the ministry of the conviction of the Spirit, Nothing will happen. You know, I heard a story this week that before Europeans um, came to Australia, the prevailing thought in Europe was that swans were white. (laughs) Because in Europe, the bird, the swan, is white. And so all of the textbooks, all of the writings of the time said that the swan is only a white bird. It's only white. There's no other possibility. That's what everyone knew at the time. But of course, when Europeans came to Australia, and in particular, Western Australia, they discovered the very first black swan. 
Now, do you realize that the only place in the world, in the whole world, where there are black swans, or where there were black swans at the time, was Western Australia? Now, at first, people did not want to accept this. They said those birds must be of a different variety, of a different kind. But eventually, the truth could not be ignored, and people had to change their deeply held beliefs. Well, such is the deception of Satan and the blinding effects of sin that people don't want to accept the truth. They don't want to accept that they are sinners and their sin keeps them out of the kingdom of God. They don't want to accept the truth that God is holy and righteous. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. They don't want to accept the truth that there is a coming judgment. And that is why the ministry of the conviction of the Spirit is so important because He comes and He convicts people that they are sinners that God is holy and righteous and that judgment is coming. And unless the Spirit does that, nothing changes in anyone. You know, I'll never forget when I first became a Christian. I grew up in a Christian family. Uh, I had a Christian mum and dad. But, you know, Christianity was just a theory to me. I'd heard about Jesus growing up, but I, it didn't, didn't really sink into my heart. And then when I was 18 years of age and I read this biography by Keith Green, could no compromise, God the Holy Spirit moved in my heart and I realized I was a sinner. I realized God was holy. I realized I was under his judgment and I needed the grace of God, the beautiful, wonderful grace of God. You see, this is the first ministry that Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will bring. It's the ministry of conviction because without it, we are blind we cannot see. But also there is another ministry, and that is the second ministry that Jesus unpacks of the Holy Spirit is the ministry of illumination. As Jesus says in verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He speaks, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take from what is mine, and he will declare it to you. You see, what the Holy Spirit does is he is the spirit of truth. He opens our eyes to understand the truth of God. For without the Holy Spirit, we could never understand one single thing about God. And so the Holy Spirit comes and he opens our eyes and helps us to see the beauty of Jesus, the wonder of Jesus. He changes our hearts to desire Jesus. And so even though in this world, we are going to have persecution, we're going to have opposition. Jesus also says, wonderfully, he says, you can also expect the ministry of the Spirit, you can expect the power of the Spirit moving in conviction and the power of the Spirit moving in illumination. And do you know what I've discovered? I've discovered that the places that you see those realities the greatest, the places where you see opposition to Jesus the greatest is the places where you will also see the power of the Spirit at work the greatest. You'll sense the power of the Spirit at work the greatest. As I've said many times to you, church, I wish I could take you to places like Nepal, to places around the world where to be a Christian means if you stand up for Christ publicly, it, 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 ha it has a cost involved with it, but those people know the nearness of God, the closeness of God. They can walk with God. They know the power of the Spirit in ways that we don't know. So what does Jesus expect from us? We've looked at what we should expect as his disciples. We should expect persecution and opposition, but we should also expect 
the empowering work of the Spirit. But what does Jesus expect from us as his disciples in this world? Well, I think Jesus says two things. Firstly, he says he expects us to keep on witnessing for him. Not only does Jesus say in verse 26 that the Holy Spirit is sent to bear witness, but he says in verse 27 that you will be my witnesses. You know, it's interesting that the Greek word for witness is the word martarios, from which we get the word martyr. You see, we are all, in fact, called to be martyrs for Jesus. Tom Wright, the director of The Voice of Martyrs, which is a ministry that's set up to tell the stories of Christians who have paid the ultimate price throughout the world for their faith, Um, he writes this, he says, Many today believe that a martyr is simply someone who dies for his faith. Unfortunately, by this definition, we have lost the true significance and depth of martyrdom. St. Augustine once said, The cause, not suffering, makes a genuine martyr. Did you get that? The cause, not the suffering, makes a genuine martyr. You see, it doesn't matter how much you suffer, but it matters if you are standing up for the cause, whether you are standing up for Christ and bearing testimony, bearing witness that He is your Lord, that He is your Savior. So the Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction and who bears witness, and Jesus says we also must be His witnesses. But the second thing that Jesus wants us to do in a hostile world is not only to bear witness, but also He wants us to continue to remain strong regardless of the cost, regardless of the cost. You know, over in chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says this. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. The word falling away there in, uh, you know, has the idea of abandoning the faith, of turning from the faith. Now, why would Jesus say that to his disciples who were right there in front of him? I've said these things to keep you from falling away. Well, Jesus knew that the road ahead would be very tough for these disciples. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 2, he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. To be cast out of the synagogue was a big deal. It meant more than just losing your church. It meant you were kicked out of your community. It meant your identity was erased. It meant your future plans were all shattered. You couldn't marry a girl from the community. Any children you had would be outcast. Your family would consider you as dead. They would often hold funerals for people who were kicked out of the synagogue. But even worse than that, Jesus says this. He says, indeed, in verse 2, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. So there would come a moment when they would be put to death on account of the name of Jesus. Now, if church history is correct, all the apostles, bar one, bar John, were martyred for their faith. Here's what happened to them. Peter was crucified upside down at his request since he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord Jesus. Andrew was also crucified. Thomas apparently died in India, and the claim is that he died there, pierced through by the spears of four soldiers. Philip was cruelly put to death by a Roman proconsul 
in Asia Minor after leading the proconsul's wife to Christ. Matthew ministered in Persia and Ethiopia and was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was beheaded. James was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias with Andrew were both put to death by burning. And so, as I said, all of these disciples, bar one, bar John, who wrote the Gospel of John, suffered the ultimate price for their faith, but John himself also was put in boiling oil. But when he didn't die, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And so Jesus knew what lay ahead for these disciples, and he knew that there would be the temptation to abandon the faith, but he says, don't do it. Keep on standing up for me. Keep on witnessing for me. Now, why would anyone choose this kind of life? I mean, this is a far cry from the prosperity gospel preached by so many people today. Why would anyone choose this kind of life? Well, it's because the kingdom of this world was judged on the cross. Jesus on the cross, he died for the sins of the world and Jesus opened the way for us to come into the kingdom of God but he is coming again once, one day again and he will bring judgment when he comes again and if you suffer now for the kingdom of God, Jesus promises that you will be repaid, you will be repaid when he returns. As Jesus said, he said, what good is it for a person to gain the whole world but yet forfeit his soul? And what can a person give in exchange for his soul? And knowing Jesus, knowing the Lord Jesus is worth the cost. It's worth giving all for to know the Lord Jesus Christ because he is such a wonderful savior and he paid it all for us. So what should we expect as the followers of Jesus? Well, we should expect opposition, but we should also expect the empowering work of the Spirit. And what does Jesus expect from us? He expects us to be his witnesses, and he expects us to give up, and to never give up, but to continue to stand for him, regardless of how severe it becomes. You know, when I think of someone who never gave up, regardless of how difficult it was, I think of Richard Wormbrandt. Richard Wormbrandt was a Romanian Jew who came to Christ before the Second World War and later became a pastor. And after the Second World War, the communists poured into Romania. And Richard, now a Lutheran minister, preached boldly to the Russian troops and resisted pressure to swear loyalty to the atheistic rule. On one occasion, the Wormbrandts were forced to attend the Congress of Cults. This was a congress put on by the, all the atheists, all the communists. About 4,000 people were there. And the session was broadcast live throughout the country. And the communists said, swear allegiance to us, swear allegiance to atheism. And many religious leaders forsook their faith and they swore allegiance to communism. But Sabrina, Richard's wife, told him, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. And knowing the cost, Richard stood and declared to all that their loyalty as a family was to Christ first. 
He was then kidnapped by secret police and he spent the next 14 years in prison suffering horrific tortures and brutality. When he was let out on occasion, he began an underground church which saw many people converted to Christ. In 1965, Christians in Norway heard of the Warmbrand's plight and they ransomed them for $10,000. The secret police told Richard to remain silent about the ordeal, but Richard never remained silent. In 1966, he testified before the U.S. Senate Internal Security Subcommittee about his inhumane treatment in the communist prisons and as proof of his torture, he stripped to the waist to show 18 deep torture wounds on his body. His story quickly spread and he became known as the voice of the underground church. He would eventually go on to found the ministry, the voice of the martyrs. In year 2000, Richard went to be with the Lord. Despite all the torture and hardship an evil world could throw at him, the Wormbrandt stood firm to the end in their devotion and service to Jesus Christ and they left a legacy for the rest of us to follow. You see, part of being a follower of Jesus is standing for Jesus. Even though there'll be opposition, even though there'll be hardship, even though they won't accept us, we stand for Jesus. Because can you imagine... When Richard Wormbrandt entered heaven and he saw his Savior, his Savior would be welcoming him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Just like the very first martyr, Stephen, when he was being stoned to death, he looked up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, welcoming him into heaven. You see, because you are accepted in heaven, you can be rejected on earth. Because his acceptance is all that matters, is all that matters in the end. This world is passing away. It will pass away just like that. But the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Jesus will last forever. So I wonder this morning, have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? Have you realized that you're a sinner? That you... (laughs) that you need a savior and have you bowed your knee and received the grace of King Jesus into your life? Well, this morning, I want to pray a prayer and I want to invite you, if you've never bowed your knee to King Jesus and accepted Jesus into your life, I want to pray a prayer and I want you to turn to King Jesus right where you are. Bow your knee and say, Lord Jesus, I receive you. I know it may be tough in this world, but there is so much more than this world coming. There is your kingdom that is coming which will be so much better than anything in this world. So let me pray, and if you want to pray this prayer, pray it along with me this morning. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. I realize that I am a sinner, that God is holy, and that judgment is coming. And I realize that Jesus took my penalty for me on the cross. And I just come back to you, God, this morning, and I just surrender myself to you. Lord Jesus, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come into my life to empower me and comfort me and encourage me and give me strength and help me to magnify King Jesus so I can have joy even in the midst of difficult times because I have Jesus living and reigning in me. Oh Lord, I come back to you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.